Hey, Breaking Brown family, what's going on once again? It's Yvette Carnell coming to you, as I always do, every Monday and Wednesday, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, before I get into this show, I'm going to get into this show relatively quick today. But before I get into the show, as I always do, giving you time to get whatever you need, and I'm going to forewarn you today that you may need an, a libation um, of the alcohol persuasion uh, today. So I, I want you to, I want to give you a moment actually to, to go get that right now. Because this is going to be, this is going to be, this is going to be something. This is going to be something that we got to deal with. And this is going to be, this isn't going to be a, an easy show to do. Okay? This isn't an easy show to do. So what I want you all to do right now is just do what you got to do. Take your time. Take your time. You, you don't have to, you don't have to move fast. I'm going to give you a second. But I want you to do what you got to do because you're going to need something. Okay? For today's show. Um... And like I always do, I want to tell you, if you are a fan of the show and you're watching right now and you haven't subscribed, please subscribe. If you're watching right now and you haven't liked, please like the show. If you're watching right now and you haven't hit that little bell, um, that little bell that we, that we hit, just, just, just hit it so that you get notified whenever I'm online. So just hit that little bell. You know, if you want to donate to the show, you can go to breakingbrown.com and donate and make a and make a one one time, you know, once a month um, payment um, to Breaking Brown and, and support what we're doing here. Um, if you if you if you want to if you if you want to donate just one time, you can go to donatebrown.com. You can also subscribe to the monthly newsletter. And, and for the people who've already subscribed to the newsletter, can I I say this every week, but like the only thing is I send a newsletter out and only three people bounce from the newsletter, but I see that only a third of the people open the newsletter. I think some of you are thinking that you didn't get the newsletter and you might have gotten the newsletter. So please, if you have subscribed to the newsletter, check, check your promotions folder, check your spam folder. And also just in the search box, put breaking Brown and put it together as one word or separately as two words, breaking Brown. And, and you'll find you'll, most of the people who I've said that to have found the newsletter. So if that doesn't work, please contact me. I had some of you all contact me over the past few days and say, hey, I, I'm a subscriber. I want the newsletter. Great. Um, put it full screen. I'm, great. That's great. And I'm going to get that to you. So don't think I haven't seen your email just because I have not, um, just because I have not responded. Now I want to go directly. I don't usually do this. I knew I usually frame it, but I think, this interaction is going to frame it in a way that I can't frame it. Um, so I want to frame it with this, and I want you to watch this, and we'll be right back.
shoot me, okay? I'm already in handcuffs. Do you like take them off of the right. head? Yeah. 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 I wish this town was safer. Yeah, the other days we wouldn't live in there. That's true. I don't want it to be like this anymore. Tell that to the police, okay? When they come, okay? Tell them you wish that they didn't have to kill people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Breaking Brown family, I, I, I want to bring you into, um, you, you just watched a heart-wrenching, you know, video um, of, 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 of this woman, basically, um, Diamond and her daughter, having this moment where the daughter's like, I don't want anybody to shoot you, so I'm trying to protect you. And you have to, in order to understand what happened in that car, you have to understand what happened before they were in the car, before this woman and her young daughter were in that car, before Diamond and her daughter were in that car, Diamond Reynolds, who was, she was the girlfriend of Philando Castile, who was shot seven times. Geronimo Yanez, who was the officer, she was shot seven times. He was shot seven times. She was in that car. This was a man who was in that car with his family. He was in there with his girlfriend and stepdaughter. Philando Castile was in that car with his girlfriend and stepdaughter. But Mr. Yanez still said that the reason that he shot Philando Castile was because he feared for his life. How do you feel for a life with a gun owner who has a legally licensed weapon? Okay, a legally licensed weapon he has. And he's telling you, I have a weapon. He's doing what he's been instructed to do by the NRA. And I want, I want you to understand what they had seen while this woman, Diamond, is handcuffed. She's committed no crime. She's done nothing wrong except watch her boyfriend be murdered in cold blood in front of the child. And to make it all the worse, they handcuffed her, handcuffed her, and put her in a police car. And so now her child, her toddler, is trying to comfort her. Now I want you, this is graphic. This is graphic, but I need you to see it. So now I want to show you the video that came out of Officer Yanez fatally shooting Philando Castile. And we'll come back and we'll talk about it. Your brake lights are out, so you only have one activated active brake light, and that's going to be your passenger side one. Your third brake light, which is up here on top, and then this one back here, it's going to be out. You have your license insurance? Okay. Firearm okay. Don't reach for it then. I'm, 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 Don't pull it out. Don't pull it out. 
Your brake lights are out. We're back. Ladies and gentlemen, um, Breaking Brown family, um, Philando Castile, who was shot dead, seven, seven shots fired into that car by Geronimo Yanez. He was, that day, let's just give you a look, because what I want to do when I take you through this, I'm going to talk about the man, Philando Castile. I'm going to talk about the law. I'm going to talk about that area where they lived in. And I'm going to talk about a solution in order to deal with what is happening to African-Americans at the hand of police. We're going to get through all that. But what I want to talk about first is what, what did Philando Castile do that day? You know, um, Philando Castile that day, he had gone, his birthday was coming up. So he went to get his locks. I used to have locks, so I know what that's like. He went to get his locks twisted, and he went to get his beard trimmed. And on his way, after he left there, he went to Taco Bell. And he went to his mother's house, and his daughter, you know, his sister lived, still lived with, with the mother. And he went over there, and he was talking to them. He brought them some tacos, and they were having a conversation. And one of the things that they talked about was gun ownership. Because his sister was also a gun owner. And Philando asked her, have you seen the video of Alton Sterling? And she said, no. She said, I don't want to watch any more videos of black people being killed by the police. I'm not going to watch any more of those videos. Little did she know, little did she know that pretty soon what would be happening to her is that she would be watching a video of her own brother gunned down, cold blood, by the police. She had no idea. And there was no way for her to have any idea. So what happened after Philando Castile left the house where he shared tacos with his family and talked about being a gun owner, talked about, talked about how, you know, that was his second amendment right. And they talked about their rights after he left that house. He went to pick up his girlfriend diamond and then they got pulled over for a traffic infraction. No record. This cafeteria worker was gunned down. He told the man, I have a firearm. He told Yanez, I have a firearm officer. I have a firearm. And he said, he told him, I'm not going for it. And the officer, Yanez, said, don't go for it. And then he shot him seven times. So what I, wanna, what I want to see, one of the things that never happens when black people die, we just kind of jump up and be like, well, you know, um, he, was, he was all right and he, never, he wasn't no gang member. No, let's talk about who he was. Before we get into what happened, let's talk about who this man was. This was a man who the students at the school where he worked as a cafeteria in the lunchroom, they said he knew everybody's allergies. He knew who was lactose intolerant. He knew who was allergic to nuts. When his friend asked him, why you work in the summer? Because they got paid during the summer. Even the cafeteria workers, he said, you know, I like the kids. I love kids. So I'm, 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 I'm going to be there doing the summer for the kids. That's what he said. 
and they described him as a laid back guy. He just liked to watch. He's like he liked to play video games. He didn't really talk much. And when the police officer came, he did what he was told. What he was told to do, what you're supposed to do when a police officer approaches your car and you have a firearm, you're supposed to let that officer know. But you know what it is? Laws. There is no law on the books that authority is bound to respect if you're, if you're African-American. But there's a reason for that. It's not about just you don't like black skin. It's not about the fact that these people hate black people. There's a whole systemic setup. And what I'm going to keep saying throughout this broadcast is that I want you to, I want you to stop looking at these people who have these simple ideas and simple solutions for what has to happen to help people like Philando Castile. It's more complicated than that. It's more complicated than saying he's just a racist and he's out here trying to kill black people. It's more complicated. Yes, he is a racist, but I'll tell you why. Even racism is more complicated than a lot of you think that a lot of people would lead you to believe. You don't have to hate black people to be racist. You just have to hold us to a double standard. You just have to... Mr. Yanez was racist because he wasn't stopping white people like that. Put up the clip army of um there's a great clip 74 seconds there's a podcast called 74 sec 74 seconds and if you get a chance to to and you really should as your due diligence as your due diligence we, you really should something happened to the audio oh it's bad that's good that's good how, how much did everybody miss 10 seconds okay if you get a chance, everybody, I need you to check out this podcast, 74 Seconds, iTunes, I do cast, wherever you get your podcast, check this audio, check this podcast out. Because one of the things that they do in this 74 Seconds podcast is they talk about, and I don't even know if they know they're talking about it, how this, 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 this area where Philando Castillo was where he was driving through, is 7% white, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's major, I'm sorry, it's majority white. But 44%, 44% of the people who get pulled over and cited are black and only 7% are white. 44% are black, only 7% white. And an area that's majority white. So that's how Philando Castile got killed. He didn't need to be. You don't understand. Geronimo Yanez, Officer Geronimo Yanez didn't need to be to hate black people. It doesn't matter how nice you walk up to the car. It doesn't matter how sweet you are. It doesn't matter how cordial you are. You're targeting me. And you're targeting African Americans because we're black. That's what it is. So for people who say this is an execution, I'm going to prove to you that this is a systemic thing. It's not about just executing someone. It's not about these people just being racist. Nobody's going around wearing hoods anymore. But you're treating, you're holding black people to a different standard because the area that you live in thrives on black failure.
If you all have anybody who's been watching the show for a long time, know that I've been saying this again and again. People are eating. Mr. Yanez, Officer Yanez, the reason that he was able to move to an affluent community, because he was raised in a working class community, the reason he was able to move to a affluent community as a Latino is because he was willing to also make money off black failure and harass black people. Yes, that makes you a racist. Absolutely. But we have to talk about that. Blacks, you know, I, you know let me see. I think I got it wrong. Blacks were 44%. No, here it is. Yes, this is right. Blacks were 44% of that area, but only 7% of the population. They were 40, blacks are 44%. You know, blacks are only 7% of the population and 44% of the citations. That's what... 7% of the... 7%, that's what I meant to say. Blacks were 7% of the population and 44% of the citations. And what you have to understand is that these are citations like the light bulb above your license plate is out. And you get a citation for that. You, you get a citation for a, a light bulb, a tail light being out. And during that time, one of the things I found out, you know, they just came out recently with the thing where you can automatically know if somebody has insurance in some states, right? You can, that, that didn't exist. What they did a lot of the times is they actually would pull people over and then cite them for not having insurance, stuff like that. That stuff that before, before everything was digitized, they could not know. Before everything was digitized, they didn't know until they pulled you over that you didn't have insurance. They pull you over to find ways to bring you into the system, to get money for you, to get money, to get revenue. That's what it is. Okay? So, you know, I want, I just want everybody to understand that this is what it is. Now I want to talk about the officer. Now I want to talk about the officer. You know, a white woman said during that podcast, one of the podcasts, some of the stuff I researched that, oh, he was great with me. I'm sure he was. <laughs> I'm sure he was wonderful for the white woman. Somebody toilet papered my house and he was wonderful. I'm sure he was. It doesn't matter though. And, and you know, that's what that white woman said. I want to give you, I want to give you a version of what a black woman said, um, and this is just audio, there's no video, but what she said about her encounter or interaction with the officer who fatally shot Philando Castillo. Yep. Right here, right here. Digging through those records, I found the name Tia Williams. She was pulled over by Yanas in St. Anthony in the fall of 2015. I tracked her down. And he was like, the worst police officer I've ever dealt with in my life. Williams is black. She told me she accused Yanas of racially profiling her when he stopped her. And he saw me right there and he zoomed up on me and I'm like, oh no, he's not going to play cat and mouse with me. I'm going to stop right here right now. Whatever it is you need, come over, you know. So I stopped right there and then that's when he pulled me over. Williams agreed to show me where the stop happened, but she said she didn't feel comfortable driving in St. Anthony by herself anymore. So we met in the parking lot of a strip mall a few miles yeah, away. Like right over here, because I could see my house. She brought her yeah. dog, a big black pit bull. 
He took a nap in the backseat of my car while we drove. So we went to the spot where he pulled her over. This is the street I lived on. Yep, right here. This is squat tape from that stop. You can hear her asking why he's pulling her over. Hello. Hi, what? Okay, you can drop the attitude, okay? Why are you... Okay. Are you profiling me? I see you watching It's dark out. I can't even see inside the car. It's dark out. I can't even see inside the car, he says. Your attitude determines where this traffic stop goes, whether it ends in a citation or ends in a durable warning. He tells her, your attitude will determine how this stop goes. He impounded her car and explained to the tow truck driver what happened. She wasn't too happy. She accused me of being racist. She accused me of being racist, he says. She started saying stuff about minorities, and I don't think she saw my skin color. I don't know. Just caught her on the wrong day. What are you? I'm Mexican. Yeah. I'm Mexican. I'm Mexican. She obviously didn't see my skin. She would know that I'm Mexican. He didn't even say, think about this. He didn't even say I'm Mexican-American. I'm Mexican. Listen, it doesn't matter. I don't care. We all know. Listen, as far as I'm concerned, Barack Obama was a racist. It does not matter if you are Mexican, if you are disproportionately targeting African-Americans. Who cares? Who cares that you're Mexican? Is that supposed to make some kind of difference? Are we supposed to feel better about being targeted and harassed by Mexicans and everyone else? Oh my God, I'm Mexican. She obviously didn't see me. No, she saw herself getting pulled over. She saw her ass getting pulled over. That's what she saw. She saw herself getting pulled over for no reason. And like somebody said, Mexican is not a race. That's just a nationality. That's where you're from. What does that mean? And why should we have some kind of anything? I don't have any kind of... What does that mean? He says that as he pulls over this woman and she says, I'm not even comfortable being, over, being around that area anymore. I, I, don't, I don't like being over there because of how I'm treated over there. And it's, the, the, you have to understand. Understand what I'm saying. From, from, from the beginning... From the beginning of age 18, Philando Castile had been harassed by the police. He was about to have his 33rd birthday, and he was still getting harassed by the police. $6,000 in fines. At one point, he was paying $500 a month in fines. You have to understand, 46 stops. And this was a man who wasn't a gang member. This was a man who hadn't done anything wrong, but had been pulled over, arrested. All of that stuff had been happening to him. Come on, people. You have to understand what this is. You have to understand who... Officer Geronimo Yanez is. I don't care how nice he comes up to your car. And we're going to get to the rest of it. $6,000 worth of tickets. $500 for a month. Over like 46, 46 citations. 
Come on. Since the age of 18. So what you're basically telling me is that basically since the time he started driving, they were harassing him. The plan was for him to fail so that they could succeed. The government, the people in the nice neighborhoods, those are the people who Officer Yanez really served. He wasn't serving the people in the community, the black people in that community. That's not who he was serving. That's not his job. His job is to manage poor people and warehouse them in jail and extract money from them. And I don't care who you are. I don't care if you are a Latino cop or you're an African-American cop. If that is your job, you are my class and you are my enemy. And I don't care if you poor, you're my class enemy. But what you have to understand is this. This man went from a working class community to an affluent community. And what that meant is that he had to harass black people. And he had no problem doing that if it it got him out of a working class community and into a good community. He don't care about you. He don't care about me. He don't care about us. And he should be in jail tonight. He's not. For a number of reasons. You know... He's not in jail for a number of reasons, but we got to break that down, right? We got to talk about that. We got to talk about, you know, this idea, right, Army, where people think, like, well, my race matters. You know, Army said only the victim's race matters. When you look at the disproportionality of 7%, you make up 7% of the community and you get stopped 44% of the time and ticketed and taken to jail. And then, if you can't pay your fines, if you can't pay your fees, you get taken to jail too. That's the life we live. That's who we are. And we got to talk about that. And we got to talk about everything that means. Not just one thing, not just two things. This is a systemic thing. Beware of people going around saying, well, these people just racist. It's not that simple. And you have a role in that too. We all have a role. Let me know whenever you're ready, Aaron. We all have a role. Now, there's something else that's very curious. Even though this black man who, even from the the video you saw, he sounded very laid back. He sounded very chill. He was just like, "I I, I got a firearm. I'm not reaching for it. But he said, I have it. He told him, I'm not reaching for it. And he said, don't reach for it. But there's something very curious about, about this officer. Um, and it may have something to do with race, but it's deeper than that. There's an, there are other occasions where you hear Yanez do something, do things that, that, that don't quite make sense. You hear him do things that kind of show you that he's not prepared for the job of being a police officer, clip regardless seven. of his racism. So, clip, I think it's seven. Yeah, I got it. It's ready. Put, I'm not, put, fit, not fit to serve? Yeah, put up clip number seven, and we're going to come back to it. And I want you, I, I, I want to talk about this clip. It's also from that podcast. Not fit to serve, right? Huh? Not fit to serve? Yeah. Narrow four-lane divided highway. He approaches the driver's side window, and he's basically standing on the white line as he talks to the driver. Hey, what's going on, man? The reason I pulled you over, you know your brake light's out on your pass-through side? 
He's friendly about the stop. He even lets the driver get out to look at the brake light. But when he's back, standing at the driver's window, this happens. If anything, I can arrange a ride. car passes right next to Yana's. It almost hits him. It's so close. It comes within inches. At that point, Yana's totally abandons the first stop. You know, I literally almost just got hit by a car. My car is still uh, southbound 280 South Como. I'm going to try and catch up to this car. <sighs> he follows the car for two minutes. It's not stopping. It pulls off the highway, down a side road. It's still going. I got it right here. It's not stopping. Finally, it rolls to a stop on a quiet residential street. Vehicles now stopped. Occupied two times. Yanis thinks there are two people in the car. There's only one. The driver gets out, walks backwards, hands up. He's cooperating. Driver! Walk back towards my boy slowly. Keep walking. Keep walking. Keep walking. Take two steps to your left. Stop. Go down your knees. They're off the dash cam now. Yanas and another officer are cuffing the driver and frisking him out of frame. We can't see exactly what's happening. What's that, dude? It's a fucking weapon. Are you Get fucking serious? What else you got on you, bro? They find a weapon on him. Right away, Yanas thinks it's a gun. Turns out to be a knife. And correction, They put the driver in the back of Yanez's squad car. More backup arrives. That's Yanez, breathing heavy. Other officers try to calm him down. All right, dude. Two clear, take, a, take a minute. I'm sorry, man. I just fucking flipped out of you. I flipped out, he says. Don't worry about it. Stuff happens. He keeps breathing like that. Motherfucker, y'all. For 13 minutes. Narrow four-lane divide. Officer Geronimo Yanez thought he saw a gun. There was no gun. He said he flipped out. He's breathing hard, and even the officers around him were concerned about him. He wasn't fit for the job. He was never fit to be in this capacity. So you had a, you had a racist, unfit man in this capacity, but that's not big enough. What you need to understand is that this is not just about this officer being racist. What this is about is that you have a whole community you have a whole community demanding that he stop black people. This isn't, this isn't just one thing. There was a great article a while back about how these black people live in a white community and they kept getting stopped and black people in the community kept getting stopped and white people were calling the police and I see black people can consider be strange to do anything. You could be changing your attire. Well, he's, he's suspicious. What is he doing? This is, this is people who have capital. Demanding a check be put on people who don't have capital. Let me say that again. This is a this is a check. People who don't have people who have capital are saying, "Keep these broke people out of my neighborhood." Keep these broke black people. 
Yes, keep these broke. I don't want to see these because you don't. You can't see a white person and know if they broke. People <laughs> say, "Well, what about broke white people?" You don't look at a white person and say, "Oh, he's broke. He white just like so they can fit in. They can slip in. You can't slip in." That's something that we can do. So we get targeted. And that was his job. This is a systemic issue because that was his job. They demand that people like Philando get stopped. I don't want them in here anyway. This is my community. I don't want them here. If they're here, maybe if you harass them enough, they'll go away. And also, the city runs on that budget. So stop them and get me some money up in here to run this city. And we should also discuss the law. We should also discuss the law in this instance. Because the law doesn't help us. Yanez was charged with second degree manslaughter. Okay? It's a tricky thing though. If you put up a number 8, clip 8 and 9. What you see is that it's kind of difficult to, to charge an officer or to be successful Charging an officer with second-degree manslaughter because it's intended for something kind of different. It's up. It's intended for like culpable negligence, which means like you were playing with a gun or something happened <laughs> to something. That's what it's kind of meant for. So the officers or the or the or the, or the defense attorney, if they can show that this officer was fearing for his life, and people want to believe police officers. Then you have trouble making that claim. Now, even that's not how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be whether or not the police officer made a reasonable assessment in firing seven shots into the car of Philando Castile with a child in the backseat, the woman in the backseat. That's supposed to be, but that's not how people look at it. People are deferential to police officers for reasons I will never understand. A lot of it is propaganda. In terms of how we're viewed. And how they are viewed. And so, what I want to say is, even if he had been convicted, that's only 10 years. You were a punk and a racist and you fired 10 shots. I mean, 7 shots into a car. That's 10 years. Only if you didn't, even if he had gotten convicted. Even if he had gotten convicted, that would have been only ten. That would have been only ten years maximum. There's a problem with the law. There's a problem with systemic racism in this country, and there's a problem with how that racism is used to make money and to manage poor people who are disproportionately African American. You know. Since 2005, only 81 police officers, not just in Minnesota, only one in Minnesota where this happened, where Philando Castile was gone down, but only 81 police officers have been charged in connection with the fatal shooting while they were on the, while they were on, um, on the clock. There have been thousands of fatal shootings. Only 80 have been charged. And it's difficult. That's part of why it's so difficult to convict them. They're looking at whether or not it was believable, but that Philando could have been going for a gun. Well, yeah, a lot of stuff is believable, but he didn't present as if someone who was going for a gun. 
But that's part of what they use. That's part of what the jury used to come up with their decision. Now, here's what I want to say about that. Do you know that there were two black people on the jury? One was Ethiopian and one was African American. Now, we need to talk about everything from jury nullification to, in, to influencing people on the jury. And the only way you influence people is to know, to know politics, to know what you're doing, and to know why you're in that jury room. Why do you think I talk about black politics so much? So that you know if this happens to you, when you go in that room, you know what you got to do. You know what your responsibility is. That's what you have to do. You can't get in there. I don't care. I don't, you can't get in there and have an acquittal. Don't care. We don't know why we need to talk. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. When you get in there, like people say, well, should I be racist to vote? Well, I think you should always be racist to vote for no other reason than you're going to be called on to sit on a jury. How can you sit back and complain about juries and about jury selection and about uh, convictions if you're not racist to vote so you can be on a jury? That is essential. That is essential. There were two black people on that jury. Okay, and beware of people. Let me just say before we go to the phones, beware of people with simple answers. Beware of that because put that clip up. I mean, do y'all remember Ferguson? Do y'all remember Ferguson? I'm just asking. It ain't been that long ago. Do we remember Ferguson at all? Do we remember how the same thing happened in Ferguson? That happened to Philando Castile. These people were using the money that they made off harassing black people who were just trying to drive from one place to the other. They used that money to finance the city. So the system needs us to fail. If, the, if we don't fail, they don't make no money. And that's how the system is set up. That's how it's set up. And when you talk to me, when you talk to me about solutions, ladies and gentlemen, when you talk to me about solutions, what I want to say is this. I'm, I'm not trying to be hard. I'm not trying to be rude. Philando Castillo had a friend. And there was an interview, and the friend said that he was now political. He said... Because his friend Philando Castile had gotten shot and gunned down, that he was now a political person. Okay. I'm telling you that your po politics has to start way before there. You, don't, you cannot be apolitical and be black. And I'm going to explain that to you in just a second, but I mean, you got somebody for us you need to talk to. Dr. Tommy Curry on the phone? Yeah, I got Dr. Tommy Curry on the phone. Great. Right. You going to do my intro? Professor at the University of... <laughs> <laughs> I think Tommy Curry can take it. Okay, how you doing? Hey, Tommy. Hey, how you doing, Yvette? I'm doing pretty good. That's great. That's great. All right, so tell me something we don't... 
Tommy, tell me yeah, something. I have a little we trouble hearing. Yeah, that's fine. Hey, Tommy, tell me something we don't know about Mr. Philando Castile and this situation. Man, uh, black man uh, owned a gun legally, executed for exercising his Second Amendment rights. Uh, I mean, this is a classic example. You know, in, in the book, I talk about uh, the homoerotic drive uh, towards black male death. And I think this is a very clear-cut example of how the interaction that white people, uh, that other minority groups, ethnic groups have internalized white supremacy or anti-blackness react to black male bodies, right? I mean, when you look at the studies of Wilson, we already know uh, through studies of formidability that black men who may be small in stature already appear to be more dangerous, larger in size, and more aggressive than their white counterparts, white or Asian counterparts. Uh, but that doesn't explain the kind of impetus and the reactions against black male bodies. You can see someone as a danger, but what we've seen historically when you interact with black male bodies is the need to kill them to execute them, right? And, and we've downplayed this in popular culture. The blog culture, the intersectionality culture, the feminist culture has tried to push back against the idea that black men are being exterminated. There's a genocidal logic on black men because they're competing with men for victimization over gender. And we need to take a real hard look at the empirical facts of how many black men are being killed by cops in this country. Because every year it's ranging from 290 to over 300. And that's vastly different than the number of women that are being killed, the black women that are killed in this country, which barely goes over the number of 20 on any given year. Now, that's not to say the lives of those sisters don't matter, but there is something going on in the white imagination in this white republic, in this white white supremacist country that is calling for the extermination of black men. And, and, and make no mistake, the, the killing of, of, of Mr. Castile is, is based in not only the fear of black, of black male bodies, but also using his body as an example to the rest of black people yes. in the country. This was a man who legally owned a gun, was killed, executed illegally on a live stream and then the verdict was not guilty so this is given free license to the cops this is given free license to white america to know that black males simply have no legal or extra legal protections that can fight off the violence of white supremacy mm. now you remember they came after they came after me because i said that black that black people had a right to self-defense Yes. And I said the black men and black women have historically exercised this right. Ida B. Wells, Mabel Williams, these are two black women who were very adamant that the black community had to defend themselves with guns. And even with me just saying that black people have a right of self-defense, that caused the firestorm when white people were threatening my life. Mm. So we got to ask ourselves, what's going on in this country where white people are insisting that their position of white superiority means they get unfettered violence against black bodies, especially black male bodies, mm. right? Yeah. This is not a conversation that any, that any political or intellectual groups have. There's no group in the academy that's having a conversation about the proliferation of violence and genocidal logic on black male bodies because we've been lured away with identity politics and when we see black men whose heads are being decapitated and bodies burned, we're not making the connection to the representation of that mutilated black male body to what's happening in the, in the minds and imagination of white police officers or even other ethnic police officers who are executing black men on the street on public. This was a public execution. It was live streamed. We saw this black man dying on Facebook. So how is it, 
what's going this isn't just about psychological trauma this is about what a nation the message that a nation is trying to send to the black community especially to black males that you that you are disposable that we can kill you with impunity because there is no consequence and don't anyone from your committee dare raise up because the strongest of you which are your men the most radical of you which is your men the most militant of you right who have picked up guns to kill each other to kill us in the past right you are no longer threatened because we can exterminate you and nothing will happen to us. Mm. Right? This is, this is a change of times. And I fear that black academics are far too liberal and progressive, uh, too, too far bent on classical economics, or uh, um, I should just say Marxist politics and, and, and class coalitions, to understand the insidious nature that anti-blackness has in this situation. These are poor working class black men. And it's poor working class white men and white women who are siding with the state in this case for their deaths. So we have to reassess how we understand the relationship between the poverty that these black people, black families and black men find themselves in and the reaction that poor white people are having to their death and then the vulnerability that black people as a whole have because all black men are seen as that kind of threat, right? Every black man is seen as a criminal. Every black man is seen as a thief. Every black man is seen as a racist. Regardless of class, class condition, right? And this is and think about the trauma. This is this is this is what I'm saying. When you kill black men, when it's just like when they killed Ayanna Stanley, they came in trying to get her father. When you create the logic that allows you to kill black men without obstacle, without without any regard for the rule of law, then what you've done is you've also created the idea that whoever, whatever collateral damage, whatever whoever serves as casualties on the way to that are acceptable. And that's what ends up happening in our communities, that these black girls, these black women are being killed in the efforts of the state to exterminate black men, right? Mm. We saw we saw this in, in the in the Rakia Boyd situation. Right? Yeah. So we have to we have to start having a real conversation about state violence. We have to have, have a real conversation about self defense. And most importantly we have to start having a real conversation about black male studies where we're trying to figure out what is going on with the in the imagination of the white supremacist republic that's still requiring the death of black of, of black men and boys. Let, let me ask you a question, Tommy. What what is the effect? Yes, ma'am. What is the effect of what we're seeing in terms of in terms of Philando and, and all these other men getting shot down? And if they're not getting shot down, they're getting put in cages. What is the effect of this on our black politics? I mean, I think I think it lulls us into passivity. You see. We, you know, we academics love to talk about how radical we are, but there are very few academics that are siding with working class poor black people. So the, the, here's a, here's a concrete effect of this: you'll have you'll have a conference about you'll have a few papers and a few panels, especially in my discipline of philosophy, talking about how unjust this is. Okay. But there are no programs, there are no incentives, there are no spaces or platforms for working class black men to either A, talk about this in the academy, and there's certainly not an effect of this where the, the, the conversation in the academy leads to more black men coming into the academy. Mm. So that means that when you're talking about black politics, right, what you end up having is a class barrier of poor black men who are dealing with this violence, being incarcerated or killed, and then you have the social mobility by the black intelligentsia or the black middle class who looks at them and tries to distance themselves from them. Because no one wants to be criminalized as the nigga. So that becomes an, ex- that's an expendable and disposable class. You may talk about them, 
you may pretend and march and protest for them, but you're not trying to associate yourself or pull those groups of people up because ultimately the society sees those people, those poor black men as damaged criminals and nobody wants to be the nigga. So our progressive black politics are in fact petite bourgeois politics. They're politics that seek to benefit from the suffering and death of poor black people, especially, especially poor black men, under the guise of being progressive in race and race power, right? Without actually pulling up that population. So it's, it's all smoke and mirrors. Because I've yet to see one concrete initiative that's trying to engage the class and racial politics and the, and the sexual politics of dealing with poor black men who have been killed and incarcerated in this country. We keep putting this under the guise of intersectionality. We keep calling for recognition by the state, recognition from the Democratic Party. And there has not been one initiative that said the recognition doesn't work for people who, who don't work for people that Hillary Clinton called super predators, for people that the world thinks ultimately needs to be exterminated to preserve the order of American society. We haven't developed the tools or the language yet. Just say what, hold on. I want to say what you just said one more time. The people that need to be exterminated to preserve the order of American society. Oh my God. Now that was deep. Let me ask you one. I want to ask you one more question. And you said this in your book, Mr. Yes, Tommy Curry. You said, I want to know what is the one word that, that we never hear used about black men? Vulnerable. Vulnerable. Man. Did you say that? Man, you know, in my book, I have a lot of them. <laughs> well, one of them was vulnerable. I mean, Tell me, you said vulnerable. Yeah. Why'd you say that? Yeah, they're black male vulnerability. We never talk about black men as vulnerable subjects or victims. And and you know and you know you've the, the the most damning part about this isn't just when we talk about police brutality or state violence. We don't talk about black men as vulnerable when it comes to work. We don't talk. And I'll give you a really good example of this really quickly. You know, and Arami heard me talk, talk about this at a conference before. Um, when we talk about black men, there is a conceptualization amongst academics that black men are privileged. Now, black men have statistically, empirically, like you can look it up, been one of the least served groups in institutions of higher learning. In other words, we have been outnumbered as students since the 1960s or 70s. We have been outnumbered by, as, you know, in terms of professors right now, black and brown male professors are the two least groups of professors in the academy, right? But there is no initiative to try to change that. Mm. So black men are told that they're privileged even when they're the most underrepresented. Mm. And that's not because black men don't have the evidence to show that they're the most underrepresented. It's because they're the most undesirable. People simply do not desire to work with. They do not desire to be around. They do not desire to see themselves on an equal footing with black males in this country. And until we make the realization of that, that's why we can't deal with black male vulnerability. Because we deny their vulnerability to keep them out of certain spaces like the academy, like the higher echelons of businesses, like getting degrees from high school, because we don't ultimately want them in this society. And we, black male studies scholars call this anti-black or racial misandry. Right? There's, a, there's a historical and visceral hate of black males in this society that has been denied under the guise of male privilege, that has been denied under the guise of patriarchy, that has been denied under the guise of feminism, that simply does not apply when you look at the economic condition of black men in this country. They, are not, they suffer the most from unemployment. Right? They, they get the least amount of degrees. They die the earth. They have the lowest life expectancy. 
That's not a patriarch, right? They're, they're most disproportionately affected by domestic violence and intimate partner homicide. They're most shot by the cops. They're the most incarcerated, right? That's not what a patriarch looks like. But we use that, that image, that caricature of an all-powerful militant black male rapist, right? Eldridge Cleaver, to justify why we don't have any sympathy for the suffering and death that black men and boys go through right now in our society. Which is why every time a black man dies, we have other bloggers, sometimes black feminist bloggers, talking about, well, you know, back 20 years ago, he raped a young girl. Or he was an abuser. Or he did X. Or he was a drug dealer, right? So the same logic that has us negotiate the humanity of black men after they're victims of violence and death is the same kinds of logic that the white supremacist society asks us to accept every time we try to come to bat for black men. So when we were marching for Michael Brown, they gave us Ray Wright. Right? He's, he's an abuser. Yep. Right? He beat his wife. Don't, 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 don't march for these black men. Don't forget how dangerous they are to women. Right? See, these are the narratives that, that negotiate, that, that try to measure and evaluate the worth of black males in our society. So when you have black men get shot, there's also the internal contradiction that we ultimately believe that, well, they're dangerous. They're racist. Yep. They're yep. abusers. So how much do we honestly value the lives of these black men that we claim that we're impacted by? Not much. Right? We need to address that. Not much. Not much. Oh. Not much, but we need to address that. And nobody wants to step up to the plate and actually talk about black men as man not. They don't want to talk about black male vulnerability. They want to talk, don't want to talk about anti-black misandry. And they certainly don't want to talk about the fact that historically white patriarchal and capitalistic society has targeted racialized, subordinated, subjugated males for extermination the same way that America is doing to black men right now. Yes, your, what is your take on the NRAs? You know, this man was a licensed gun owner. He wasn't doing oh, anything. Yeah. Second Amendment. What is your take on the NRA's silence on Philando Castile's execution? Well, you, you know, this, this is actually something that I research and write about quite a bit. So the, the Second Amendment was always conceptualized as a, as a white supremacist doctrine. So when you look at the history of the Second Amendment, the fact that black enslaved blacks or even free blacks weren't allowed to have guns except on the land of their owners or plantation owners for hunting, you can see that the right to bear arms has traditionally been used against black communities for the, for the benefit of white communities trying to keep order and keep them in line. That being said, I think that when you look at the NRA, and this is the same thing when Reagan signed off to the legislation against open carry with the Panthers uh, back in the 70s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, you see the exact same thing. The NRA is there to maintain the rights of white people to arm themselves. The rights of white people, right, because the Second Amendment says right, to, to, to maintain a militia. You need a militia to preserve social order, historically, against slave revolts or uh, indigenous people's uprisings, right? So it's in that same jurisprudential vein of historical memory that the Second Amendment is used to protect the right of white individuals to own guns, be it assault rifles, etc., while simultaneously holding the contradiction that black people can be socially punished mm. by the state for exercising the very same right. So it's not surprising that the NRA is not taking up or speaking out for, for, for this brother, for Philando. There, there's, no, there's no contradiction there if you look at it historically, because the NRA has always been insistent under the, following the Second Amendment that it's here to protect white life and white, white people's right to bear arms. Uh -huh. Again, this is why I said 
This is why I say in that, in that article I wrote about Robert F. Williams and presumptive and, and preemptive self-defense, that the argument for the Second Amendment for black people has to move beyond the idea of using individual Second Amendment rights, in, in other words, my individual right to own a gun, and has to switch the focus to how black communities, because they're vulnerable to white supremacist violence, have to arm themselves because the rule of law has failed to protect them. Oh. So our Second Amendment consciousness has to be based in the historical and communal fact that black people have always remained vulnerable to white violence, to death, because the rule of law has never protected them. This is not an issue about owning a handgun. This is the issue of the right to defend yourself, to bear arms against a tyrannical state and white vigilante. So the NRA, in this way, through their silence, is simply functioning to uphold the white supremacist history of the Second Amendment. So they're true to form in a lot of ways. Okay. Well, well, thank you, Tommy. I, I, you know, I appreciate you coming on. I always appreciate you calling in. I think, I mean, you. I, no, I appreciate talking to you, man. <laughs> you got people in the chat room like this. Is that fire! I didn't never. You got people think. I mean, this is. I mean, brother, when you said. No, don't, don't. Oh, I mean, when you said when you said the white imagination. I don't think people understand you know. what that means. The white imagination in terms of extermination, in terms of the plan they have, and how that plan deals with black men as a way of dealing with the dealing with black people. That's what we're dealing with. Exactly. And so, I, I you know, I, I just I, go ahead. They don't concede that. But, but see, that's what that's what I'm saying. See what you said right there. They don't concede that in the academy. You see, in the academy, they want you to pick your favorite subject. Pick a black woman, pick a, a, a gay black man, pick, pick a trans person, pick, you know, they, they're picking subjects. They're not looking at how the effects of, of a community, when you eliminate the male workforce, the fathers, the sons, the laborers in that community. If you have a group of people come in and publicly execute the men in your community, when you're in a patriarchal society that has socialized you to believe that the people who usually stand up in defense of a community are men, then what psychological message does that send to that community? That they're vulnerable, that they're disposable, that they have no defense, right? And then what's the economic effect of black men being taken out of homes? What's the effect of black men being put in jail? This is creating more single mother households. This is creating multiple uh, under underemployment, women working more than one job, more dependence. Like this, this is crushing our community, not just because it means men in the community, but because you're looking at a program of state violence and neglect that is creating poverty, creating distrust, criminalization, and surveillance. And this is exactly the state that our community, urban centers are in today. So it becomes nonsensical to me to make arguments about why we shouldn't talk about men because if there's patriarchy, when you're saying the effects of this are what's actually happening right now. Mm. And this is why academic theory doesn't have much to do with actual black life. Mm. Right? And in my book, The Man Not, this is exactly what I talk about. How gender theory, how classical economic theory, how even radical theory like Marxism cannot account for the condition that black males are suffering in the urban centers of America today. Mm. Right? You're, they're using death. They're using death to rid popular opinion. They are eliminating black men who can vote and participate in political processes to stop the way that the black people could vote possibly. They're locking black men up so that they can't exercise the right to vote and influence political process. They're killing black men so they can't protest. They're killing black men so protests don't become militant or violent. Wow. Right? By killing black men, you are effectively eliminating their radical consciousness 
of militancy that has historically used guns and arms to challenge white supremacy in this country. And nobody wants to talk about that. Because now we phrase all those black men who died in every war in America, from the American Revolution to the Civil Rights Movement, as patriarchs who were hell-bent on destroying their communities because they wanted to dominate women. But at no point do we talk about all the black men who gave their lives in the Civil War to eliminate slavery. At no point do we talk about the beacons of the fence, all the black people who died so that people could protest, pro protest peacefully. Oh. You see, we don't do all this to our own people. So we're allowing them to kill off and justified in our own minds as academics to kill off poor black men because we too have internalized the view that they're dangerous rather than that they're, than that they're heroic. Mm. Right? We have, we have problems. And it functions both at the ideological level, the economic level, and the political level. But we act like as black academics, we can only talk about one thing at a time. Right. So yeah, we, we have we have to we have to make we have to get some new theories and, and, and some groundwork um, programs in place to deal with this because they are systematically eliminating black men and as, as a function of that they they are they are literally building um, a surveillance around the black community. We're becoming expendable as a people. I, 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 thank you, thank you, Dr. Tommy Curry. I appreciate you calling in. I always appreciate you calling in, giving your opinion. I think you, you know, you brought that fire tonight, and I, and I, and that intellect. And if if you all, you know, the man not that's Dr. Tommy Curry's latest book. Um, please check that out. Please buy that book. Please support this brother. He's out there doing good work in terms of illuminating what the problem is, and so we can know what to do with it, and we can know that black men ain't your problem. The problem, the problem is not black men. The problem is ain't no patriarchy in the black community. Black men don't have no wealth and no power to wield. And I said this on a previous show. Like, what happens to the community once you just take all the men out of it? Well, you're just vulnerable. You're just a vulnerable community. What are you going to do? I like, you know what I mean? Like, like it's almost as if, you know, feminism somehow makes us believe that men don't have a role in our community. And, like, where did you get that from? Because men have a heavy role in the white community, but you don't believe they have no, no role in yours? So, I mean, right. I, you know, I just, I mean, we it's... Never, we don't dispose the white patriarchs. Yeah. The white patriarchs own businesses. The white yeah. patriarchs who we had our, our policy to give us tenure. We ain't mad at the white patriarchs. But all yeah. these working class poor black men, that's the, they're the problem. Yeah. No, you're right. I agree. Thank you. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you. I appreciate, right, you. appreciate, I appreciate you, you for calling in and dropping that knowledge. And like I said, everybody pick up Tommy's book. We might have to discuss that one day on this show. You know, we got to we gotta get out of this stuff that we just, everything is this and, you know, black men are dangerous and they monsters no. because that's white supremacy. I don't know if we all understand it, but when you say that, that's white supremacy. And what, what Tommy said, one thing Dr. Tommy Curry said it was very important, like nobody wants to be around black men because they look like prisoners because they put them all in jail. So who wants to look like somebody who's been in jail? Who wants to associate with that? So what they're doing is exterminating. And I, I don't know what black women think, but I know what I think. I think they're just making the community vulnerable and we're going to be next. <laughs> no, that's... What happens when you take all the men out of the community? You're next. Ain't nobody to fight. Ain't nobody to fight. Yeah, the myth that, uh, and I, you know, I'm an, I've been in academics for long enough that I know the myth that like black men are patriarchs like white men. It does so much work in gender studies that you it, it, it elides over black vulnerability, black male vulnerability. That's now I have a son and I see, and I, I think about this a lot. Um, the one adjective that we don't use to describe black men is a true adjective is vulnerable. 
But think about it. When you're raising a white child, you don't tell them to be nice to the police. You don't tell them to mind their manners around their teachers lest they, like, fail or get expelled or go to the... Like, like you have... But you know why part of that is? Why is it? White people have something to protect. They have wealth to protect. So they already know I ain't, I'm not going to... I have to protect my stuff. Right. They, they get taught early on how to protect their rights. Right. Right? Because they have stuff. We don't. We were never made whole. I don't think people understand. We were never made whole, and now you have the men in the community just being ripped from the community and put in cages. The food. Yeah, it's food for like capitalists to live off of, and nobody sees that as a problem, problem. and nobody sees it as a threat because you can say, well. Look at Ray Rice. He hit that woman. Right. We have an entire media propaganda, uh, propaganda arm that's like geared towards telling us that black men are awful people. And that's just not true. The studies, and I've read Tom, and I'm reading Tommy's book as we speak. Like, like here's a, well, here's the problem. Somebody just said they just killed a pregnant black woman. Listen, I'm not throwing any shade to any black women who have been killed. What I'm saying is that the rate, you see, this is when we don't understand numbers. Numbers. This is when we don't understand numbers. The rate of black men incarcerated is 10,000 per 100,000. That's higher than apartheid South Africa. The rate of black women is what, like 300 per 100,000? Nothing compares to the number of black men who stop getting in this thing as black women when we gotta just well we get killed too not no, at the same rate this is about same, this is a different problem about numbers <laughs> if you can't count I don't know why you're here I don't know why you're in the chat I don't know why you're in the comments you have to be able to count and we have to come together as a community we can't keep being adversarial like this. And especially as women, we can't be kidding like, well, we're going to jail too. Not in the numbers. Not, not 10,000 per 100,000. Apartheid. We're worse. For black men. Black women like 300 or something. It's, not, it's nowhere near that level. You got to know that when you look at those numbers, when you look at those numbers, you got to know something's going on. You got to know when you look at those numbers, there's a plan. Now, I don't know the plan, but you got to know there's a plan. I know what's the plan is screw up black politics. Screw up black politics. I mean, and we going like, to take them out first. And what makes black women think? Because I think it. What makes us think that we ain't second? <laughs> they just take, it's just like, it's just like, you ever watch those movies, Army, where they got all the guards outside right. and somebody just go knock the guards on the head, shoot them with an arrow, all kind of stuff. And yeah. then you get to go inside. Right. Like, they're taking Black away everybody guys. outside. Yeah. But then they're going to go inside. And I'm in the house. <laughs> I'm inside. No, the, I mean, I was arrested a few times. Oh, I was arrested once, particularly. Well, <laughs> you know, at a protest. This one is at a protest, not the hospital arrest. This is at a oh, protest okay. arrest. And what cops do when you're arrested in a multicultural protest? First, they arrest the black men. Um, because they know if they arrest everyone except the black men and it's just black men there, like it's going to be a problem. So first they arrest the black men and then they leave the white women for last. So they arrest oh, the black. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, because they'll just they'll just fall over. So like they arrest oh, the black men no, first. <laughs> so they arrest the biggest targets first. Yep. They neutralize the biggest target, like the most dangerous targets first. And what did, like the chilling effect of, look, we do black politics. Every Monday and Wednesday, we do black politics. We tell black people to organize and stand up for themselves in public as a group. Yeah. What does this do to our project? It's a I mean, problem. This, this for kills black our project because, like, what I'm saying, even on YouTube. Like, let me just say this. Even on YouTube, what I see all the time happening is all these black women and black men going at each other. Listen, we can't survive like that. 
We can't go. We can't go to the next generation just going at each other and talking about each other and 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 talking about black women. Well, black men ain't this, and well, well, black. Women. Listen, it's not gonna work, Vulnerable. people. It's not gonna work. It's not going to work. And you can't believe that patriarchy exists in the black community like that. We don't. Patriarchy stems from having wealth that you can wield and you can use that. To do, get people to do what you want them to do. White men can do that. Jeff Bezos is a patriarch. Closest thing we have to patriarchy is like Al Sharpton. One is a clown and the other one's Jeff Bezos. Like, I'll be honest. Like, so we don't have it like that. Like, black, there is no black patriarchy. So don't try to tar black men as some like abuse. Like, we're victims in food and like the subject of generations of trauma. And, like, yeah. Yeah, the, the labor economy has never been good to us. So, like, the few black people they hold up as, like, some, like, powerful patriarch as a problem. No, they're clowns. They're a cheap imitation of real white patriarchy, which is real and serious. And, like, they're talking about judges. Like, like the, 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 the picture I have yeah. in mind is, like, Donald Trump on one side. And then, like, that black prosperity preacher who was his guy for a while on the other. That's black patriarchy. So one is a clown, and then the other one's the president of the United States. One's a real patriarch. And, and, and not just the president of the United States. The president who was, who was like, a multi-multi, might as well say billionaire, billionaire before he got to be president. You comparing, you comparing somebody to him. How to Creflo Dollar. Yeah, no, like, T.D. Jakes is not a patriarch. And no, he's, like, he's, people like, got to understand, he's building stuff. Creflo Dollar is, is selling you yeah. on something. Like it that. ain't even real gospel. <laughs> this is not real gospel. This is just something this guy is trying to sell you on, which is BS. He's not a real church where you're doing stuff for the people and you and you and, and don't 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 send me no Creflo stuff. This yeah. man wanted a luxury jet, so just shut up if you're a Creflo person. This is not that kind of church. That's not that. That's not this kind of good that's church. That's not the LDS church. Politics. The yeah. Mormons. That's patriarchy. Yeah, Mormons. this is not. We got billions some, of dollars in university. Not, I don't want anybody to say No, I, we got some good churches. I was with the Dr. Cosby church they're doing some great stuff out there that ain't that church that's a different church with a different ambition right. with all that stuff so I mean I think when, getting back to Philando Castillo one of the things I want to say people is that we cannot afford to be apolitical you cannot afford to just go home from work every night and watch TV because even though you might not be messing with nobody as a black person somebody always going to be messing with you and the only thing we can do is, as a, as a collective, get together and make our wishes known and make demands. That's what we have to do. You, you know, we like to live as black people right now like we're part of some type of aristocracy. Well, we get to just go home and just do whatever we want to do. We have not, we're, not, we're not there. You have to be involved in terms of your local stuff. Go, go to the meetings. You don't, you don't get to just go home and act like you white. We don't get to do that. We have to be involved. We have to pay attention. We have to read articles and know what's going on. We have to read articles all the time of what's happening in my community, what's happening nationally, so that we can come and we can, we can face this stuff off without having me come and be like, what you just said didn't make any sense. We have to be able to do that. Go ahead. Yeah, just one more in defense, of, uh, in defense of black men. In Tommy Curry's book, he says, like, and he lays out the studies. Tommy's current book, The Man Not, is actually wonderful in terms of laying out studies because the bibliography is real. And he says, look, if you look at the numbers, everywhere we can find 
Black men are the most progressive in terms of gender relations. Most equal at home, spend the most time with their kids. Even when they're not married to the baby's mom, they spend the most time with their kids compared to white men. So, like, don't let anyone tell you that black men are not doing their jobs. Like, the black male identity has emerged as a vulnerable, like, like targeted identity. I mean, honestly, it's not yeah. the powerful patriarch that, like, like we're not that guy. We're people who's working for our people and working with our people. Yeah. And, like, we're not trying to dominate anybody. We're just trying to work and do justice for our people. Don't let anyone tell you that black men are a problem. They're fine. It's well, all the other men who are shooting black men. And I think, I think black women got to start taking on white women. I mean, you know, you have these white women who tell you that they're feminists and they're all this stuff and they're not doing anything but taking your affirmative action. Why don't we, why don't we aim at them? Yeah. You know, when you talk about where there's too much, there's too much in the, in the, in the, in the, in the black community, there's too much. That, yeah, there is too much infighting. It needs to stop. You got my affirmative action, though, and I need it back. <laughs> I need it back because I, I, I need that because we don't have no poor. We were never made whole. I need you to give me that affirmative action because you don't need it, and it was never supposed to give it to you anyway. Give me that back. You don't need to be telling me about what I need to do in my community and telling me what the feminism should be defined as. I don't need you for that. I just need you to give me that affirmative action back so I can get a job, so I can get a role that I can play and do what I got to do. That's what I need you to do. Don't tell me what to do amongst my people and myself. That's not your role. So uh, I, I think we're going to the, go, to the, um, go to the phones in a second, but, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm happy Tommy Curry called in. That's something that needed to be said. And we don't have no black media. I went on Black Media Day, and they had like a little article on Philando Castile, and they were talking about 10,000 10, other things. As if I care that Jay-Z, a 50-year-old man, is about to have a new rap song, he's talking to his kid. I don't care, and you shouldn't care either. We about to be exterminated if we don't get this stuff together. I ain't got time to care about no 50-year-old former drug dealer rapper. I'm not judging him. He did whatever, but I don't need that. I don't need that in my life. We are serious. I don't think people understood. Did you understood what Tommy Curry said? These are serious times. And that calls for serious measure. I don't have time for all that entertainment. And ain't even entertainment no more. He ain't even really good. Be mad at me if you want to. <laughs> all right, take it. Yep. All right, you Hey, this is Tobias. Hey, this is Tobias. Long time no speak. Hey, Tobias. Hey, man. Uh... Just got off work and a uh, couple things I have to say real quick. That cop who killed Philando Castile, uh-huh. he is a brown guy, but so much for that black and brown community. <laughs> uh, also, I mean, oh, listen, I'm sorry. And also, for those who hate patriarchy, patriarchy is the reason Hillary Clinton was able to run for president three times and have no debt and able to walk around with a Chanel bag. That's what patriarchy got her. Uh, That's real patriarchy. That's real patriarchy. But the thing I want to say is that the way the media is, how they portray these black people, you get these people talking about, oh, the less likely being shot. It ain't about, it's the shooting and killing, yes. But look at how they portray these black people. Want to dig in records. Want to say this person. We got to have like a moral council. But yet, when you had those two black cops in Louisiana, who shot Jeremy, six-year-old Jeremy Martin because his daddy was running away from, from them, who was a career criminal. 
It's funny that they the boy got killed on a Sunday, and by the end of the week, they were charged with murder. It's just out in the paper. And, you know, that same week, and one of them already got sent to 40 years in prison. But when it comes to us, all we get is a paperwork process saying, hey, maybe he should have pulled up the pants. Maybe he should have gotten on his knees and begged for forgiveness or whatever. Now, you're right, Tobias. Ooh. Yeah. Hey, can I say, I say one more thing before Ivy hangs up on me? <laughs> all, these, all, these, all these people who are mad at Colin Kaepernick, y'all want to talk about what he's talking about now? Because this stuff is still going on. And also more disappointed at our black politicians. All you got black folks saying, oh, man, Jeff Sessions, Donald Trump. Well, what about all these black people who were killed unarmed? What Obama and uh, what's his name, Eric Holder office, but they seem to come up with a policy for a transgender bathroom, but not for us. But hey, you guys have a good night. You too, you too, Tobias. I appreciate you calling in. What was Kamala Harris when all this was going on? Where was Cory Booker when all this was going on? Well, I can I think actually. You gotta ask about your black politics. I can tell you what Kamala Harris was doing. She what was, was she D- doing? She was a DA. She was putting black people in jail. Uh oh. She was a DA. Uh oh. Yeah, Uh-oh. yeah, yeah, no, that, that was her job. Putting black people in jail ain't somebody I want. I don't really want no prosecutor that, that likes Kamala Harris. You got, and, 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 and the more I see, like, it's hard. It's really hard to get people, when, they, when you see these people rise all the way to the top as prosecutors and they rise to the very top, that's part of the game. You got to be willing to put black people in jail, especially if you black, especially yeah. if you black. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I agree. I agree with Tobias, Lord. Mm-mm. Hello. Yes. Hey. Hello. Can you hear me? Hey, yeah, but, hey. hey. I, about about this gender about this gender war that that is taking place in in the black community and you know on the internet too the cyber community about how you have black men and black women going at each other constantly. You know, you have black men blaming black men for the collapse of the black community, saying that they conspired with the government and their baby bastard bake making machines and they have sex with the, the bottom 10 percent of black men and then you have black women on the other hand saying black men are useless you know they lust for white women they eat black women they're violent they're lazy they don't take care of their kids you shut type of black people down they seem to just suck the oxygen out of you and the people around them they're just aggressive they just constantly keep hammering this down you know you have black you have a black male youtuber i'm not going to name his name he just shits on black women constantly over and over and over you have black women who do the same thing and you come across these people too even outside of the cyberspace and it's just they're just evangelical about their beliefs about how the other gender is to blame and they're so inferior yeah, and yeah, I get not it. white. What do you? Yeah, yeah. That's all I want to say. No, appreciate it. Appreciate it. that call. Sound like Cory Booker. Appreciate you, man, for calling in. <laughs> but you sound just like I thought the Cory Booker call in. You sounded <laughs> just like him. But you know, the thing I will say, I think that I think that I think that definitely, I think that definitely exists. And I am not very interested at right. this point in figuring out who did what, when, and how. No. I just want it to stop. Like, because I think what happens in terms of, like you said, taking all the oxygen out of, like, what we're doing. What happens is that these people take all the oxygen out of politics. So what happens is that we don't talk about black politics because we're talking about, well, these women ain't nothing. And, well, y'all men ain't nothing either. And so 
there's no space to be like, ain't none of us going to be nothing because we're going to be finished <laughs> if we don't get our black politics together. There's no space to have that conversation because everybody else is having a conversation that, that, that really don't matter. Like, it really don't mean nothing. I don't, you know, you know and if anything, if y'all still want to fight after we do the real fight, then y'all go ahead. But we got a real fight to fight. And all these people are on here fighting the small fight. So I think, you know, everybody got flaws. Yeah. I understand what happened. You know, I understand why. I definitely understand why, you know, the anger. But you just, at a certain point, you just got to say, I'm grown. I'm not going to do this no more. I'm going I'm to get together and we're going to collectively do something that matters in terms of black politics. I mean, that's to me, that's what YouTube is for. YouTube ain't for me to just sit here. I, I, I could probably get more views and make more money if I just sat here and talk garbage. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do something that's not beneficial to the community as a whole. I don't see myself as some kind of little entertainer. That's not, that's not my mission. So Tommy actually has a great argument about this. And he actually want, he wants to start a black male studies department just because he says nobody studies actual black men. Like nobody as as subjects, not just objects of 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 brutality, but nobody actually studies the experience of black men, their experience of vulnerability. They're not studies in gender department. They're not studied in gender departments because everyone just assumes that black men are patriarchs and 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 violent and not not subjects who actually have thoughts and like concerns and 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 experience. So Tommy wants to start a black male studies department. Because gender departments don't take black men as subjects seriously. They take huh? everybody else's subjects seriously. Yeah, huh? But black men talking about black men and what it's like to be a black man, like that's just not something that's studied and taken seriously because we're not sympathetic. When the vulnerability of black male of black male vulnerability is not taken seriously as like a problem. It's taken seriously as something like animals deserve and black men are animals. So you so ain't, that's you ain't even animals, like. I don't know. <laughs> but like you know, in terms of how it's rendered. But yeah, I think we have to do something about that. Like that's, been, I think that's been a campaign to make everybody believe. And, and this goes back all the way to Ida B. Wells Barnett. I remember her writing when there were black men accused of rape. How you know black men were perceived as beasts. You know, and it's not a beast is not even like a puppy, right? So it's, you can't even say animal. So let's yeah. go to the next call. Yeah, gender matters, and black men are a gender. Yeah. Yes, hello. Hey. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. This is the thing. You talk about, I got two things I want to mention. Okay. First, black politics. We have over 50 black members of Congress, at least. Okay, part of Congressional Black Caucus. They're, they do a conference every year, every September. There isn't, or there has never been one piece of legislation that has been put together by your legislature, the slayers, that will give black people a benefit. Mm. None, oh, not no, one. How we go? So, there's tons and tons of legislation that protects Native Americans, that protects gays, that protects white women, specifically. But there's nothing, nothing that gives a black man and woman an advantage. How you gonna make it? Yvette, let me tell you something. You've hit on this several times, and I love you for it, Yvette. There is a hidden catastrophe going on in black America that nobody will talk about. That is black people who ain't selling dope, who ain't in jail, 
but who are going to get their education, piling on tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of the debt in the STEM careers and whatnot. And guess what, Yvette? They can't get a job. I know. They can't get in. They can't get in. They are we are blocked from industry. Now, and, and then for the couple that do get in, but here's the here's the the, the cool uh, 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 crux of the matter. Even when you get in, you just one conversation away from being blackballed out. <laughs> well, your PhD, well, your PhD means absolutely nothing. nothing. And African Americans that get in, they realize that they're not going anywhere working in this environment in corporate America. They're not going anywhere. They're not making enough money to pay back those $120,000, dollars in student loans. Black people aren't making any money. No. Very few of us make over 200000 a year. Look, as you stated before, if you, if, you make, if you got two kids in college, you make 300000 a year, you barely, you, 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 you just getting by. I'm just yep. telling you, you just getting by. We need to be honest about our situation. We need to be honest about what we need to overcome these obstacles in front of us. We need government, no question about it, because government can operate more swiftly than having a damn march every damn year or whatever. We need <laughs> government. We need legislation. We need appropriations. We need these things, and we need a damn plan. We need a, a, a one-year plan, a five-year plan, a two-year plan. We even need a hundred-year plan. In order, how are we going to not be vulnerable, Yvette? That's, what, what do we have on the table to make us not less vulnerable, but invulnerable? Yeah. Huh. I don't see it. Me either. Thank I, you. I, thank you, Carla. I appreciate you. What, what, let, me just, let me just say one of the things. He said, you know, we don't have any legislation specifically for us and other groups did. Let me tell you what happened. All of this civil rights legislation and all this affirmative action, that was specifically for us, and the Democratic Party gave it away. Because they were trying to win votes from Latinos and from Mexicans and from all other immigrants. They were trying to win votes from white women. So they gave our stuff away. And we reward them by still voting for them. No matter what. That's what happened. We did have some specific stuff. And we all, the Democrats, give it away. And he's exactly right. And so now everybody got something. And we don't got nothing. And we sitting here looking like, why am I so vulnerable? And he's right. I had somebody tell me today. Earlier today, well, um, you know, I don't have... I don't have, um, you know, black people just should have studied STEM. STEM and can't get no jobs. You don't get it. Stop saying, like, understand that this stupid stuff people are saying is not a solution. People who say we should study STEM, we are studying and then not getting jobs. Stop saying stuff that don't make no sense and thinking it's a solution. No, you just, you just, you just don't get it enough to understand what it really is. It's not a solution. You know? Yes. Kanye's bill, you know, wants to study reparations. That's the least we could do. Study and then move it. Yeah, so like Kanye's we should does be demanding that from people. You yes. need to support this bill. If you want to, if you want me as a black person to support you for office, you gotta tell you gotta go on record, first of all, as one thing. We should yes. have a list of at least of at least ten, but it's one thing you have to support the Kanye's bill to study reparations. If you can't do that for me, I'm staying home. Yeah. I ain't voting for you. And I would can, rather. We have enough juice in the Democratic Party to actually do that if black politics, black people got their politics if together. If black politics worked. If black, politi black politics does work. The problem is, and this is why the big media propaganda arm it actually works. It's there to neuter black politics. People don't want to organize if they can shoot you in the street, Yvette. Let's be honest now. Yeah. A lot of, a lot yeah. of people are like, 
You don't look at what happened to the civil rights leaders. A lot of civil rights leaders died broke and yep. young. Yep. So, like, these killings matter. They have a chilling effect on black politics. But black politics is what can say, like, look, you support this Kanye's reparations bill, or we will stay home, Democrats. Yeah, we stay home. If you don't, and I'm put, talking to you, Kamala, too. Put it on your party platform. This is not on there. Put, it, put, put that on your party platform. Yes. If you don't want to put that on your party platform, that you support, support reparations for African Americans, then we'll just stay home. And you say, well, if we put that, we can't win Republicans. I don't oh, care yeah. if you never win a Republican. <laughs> I don't care. You should be building your base anyway. Because if you do this, more black people will come out who don't vote, and they'll vote. You'll have more of that. And then if you, if you even if I'm not even thinking about nobody but us right now, but even if you, if, if you dealt with the needs of poor and working class white people, you can have them too. I I ain't got nothing to do with the fact that you want to win Republicans. I don't have nothing to do with that. I will stay home on election day if you don't put this on your agenda. That's the kind of stuff we have to do. You can go to the next one. One more? Yeah. Hey, how you doing? Hey, man, how you doing? I'm, uh, I got to say, amazing show. Amazing show. One of the best ever. Thank you Thank so you. much for this. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, anytime. Um, I just wanted to say, like, uh, you were talking about jury notification. Like, um, I actually have a story um, pertaining to that. Um, I was, when I was 19, I was on the jury, and... Um, and uh, I just saw for my, like for the first time how the process just went, and you know how they try to weed out certain jurors, like the prosecution and the yeah. defense, yeah. they try to weed out certain people. Mm-hmm. And I was actually surprised myself when I got picked because um, uh, it, it just seemed like it was a topic. It was, it was basically a domestic violence dispute, and his brother was apparently uh, got to quarrel with his girlfriend, but uh, the prosecution had no evidence. They just had the, the stories of uh, the woman and um, I believe it was a son, and like the stories were conflicting. And like the prosecution ended on an emotional note, like they're trying to like, steal away from the fact that they, they didn't have a case. And so I go in the back with the jury, they think it's like, well, this is just I can't, I can't hear you good, Carl. I can't hear you. And, I can't hear you good. It's muffled, are you? Huh? I can't hear you good. It's muffled. Okay, can you hear me now? A little bit better. Hello? Yeah. A little bit better? Um, yeah. uh, okay, basically, I was on a jury, and the prosecution had no case. Mm-hmm. They had no case. It was made an emotional plea. The um, witnesses, uh, were just, they had, the stories were conflicting. So you go in the back, and I'm thinking, this is open shut. This is open shut, right? And like, everyone, and it was so many, it was telling because of the demographics of the group. It was mostly boomers. It was mostly older people. And they were already stuck in their way. I, they, I had written this down to show them what happened during the case. And it was just led by this one person. I hate to say it, it was a black woman. And it looked like she had this vendetta. She just went off in this tangent about, like, she knows, like, other people, like, with anecdotes about violent men. And it's just like, that's not what's happening here. Yeah. I, At thank, all. Thank you, Carla. I agree. I, I thank you, Carla, for that. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to know how to take control in these jury rooms. I think you have to know how to do that. And I think that's important. And I think you have to know, you have to know the stuff though. And I think that's kind of why we're here. Somebody said, um, somebody said, talk about 
the talk about the CBC and um, you know, and them not wanting to meet with Trump. I just think I just think you meet with the president, like because he's already said he's gonna cut Medicaid and everything. Maybe you get in the room, you convince him not to do that. And you can show it. Maybe you can, maybe you can't, but you meet. Like, I don't understand why this is a conversation. And it's almost like they was like, well, well, actions speak louder than words. Like, so I ain't going to come. That's like sticks and stones should break my bones. Like, you don't say that when you're in power. Like, powerful people. But we don't have any experience with power, so we just say how these people we elect to just say and do anything. All right, so there are a few things that people get upset about. Black politics means organizing Black politics in America means organizing to deal with white people. Mm. Like, you say that, like, you don't have to deal with white people. You never have to deal with white people. Look, when you're in that jury room and you're trying to get a black guy, like, his justice, you're going to have to deal with white people. And you're going to hopefully want those white people to have read the books and to have heard the arguments, to have watched Breaking Brown. Like, there is no black politics that doesn't end in how we deal with white people. It doesn't have to begin that way. It begins with consolidating power and consolidating black power. But it ends with how are we going to deal with white people? Because they're on the juries and they're going to outnumber us and, on the and, juries. And, and, and that's just of, the and, truth. And speaking of white people, um, Antonio Moore Tone Talks, um, go subscribe. He just made a good point in the chat. He was like, what, what? What do you think would have happened if there was a white soccer mom in the car? And her boyfriend or husband got gunned down. And she was in the car with her child. What do you think would have happened? What do you think would have been the nationwide response? You know, what, this, this country has never given us the tools and has never seen us as full citizens. And that's what we're grappling with right now. That's what we're trying to figure out right now. And that's what black politics is supposed to be responding to right now. It's not supposed to be just issuing these sort of little ultimatums in terms of what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to be dealing with the fact that we're not full humans. Not Don't just say that these people don't view us as full humans. They have not given us the tool to be fully American citizens in this country. They have relegated us to an underclass status. I always say that. Understand what that means. That means we're still three-fifths of a white person in terms of how they deal with us and our wealth in this country. Half of black America don't have a dollar. Negative. Don't have a dollar, man. Come on. Worth less than, you're worth less than a dollar and you expect something. No, we should be expecting to be given that money. That's not a handout. You took it. And we can't survive without it. Yes. So I, I want to thank everybody for calling in. I appreciate all the calls tonight. I mean, we didn't have a lot because Tommy Curry called in, which was absolutely an excellent, excellent commentary. Um, so, you know, again, those of you who subscribe to the newsletter, please just check your spam, check your promotions folder, and in the search box, look for Breaking Brown so that you can see if it's in there. Because I only got, I sent the news, only a third of the people I sent the newsletter to actually opened up the newsletter, and only three people were bounced. So, you know, it doesn't do any good to get the newsletter if you don't read the newsletter, read the articles that are in there in terms of political education. So please, 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 please check that out. If you still have a problem when you go and you check your promotions folder and you check your spam folder and you search for Breaking Brown, you know, Breaking Space Brown and then Breaking Brown, just search two words together as well. If you still have a problem and you can't find it, then email me at editor at breakingbrown.com. You can go to donatebrown.com to donate. Always please go to subscribe to Brown. 
Subscribe to brown.com and be added to the mailing list as well so that I can have you on my mailing list. Also, go to breakingbrown.com and subscribe. You can you can subscribe to the newsletter if you haven't already for $2 a month. You can also subscribe and just pay $3 a month, $5, 10 15 20 25 There's a lot yeah. of options that you can, you can pay and you can support what we're doing here. So thank everybody tonight. I know it was a kind of difficult show to go through, but I think we had to do it. And right. I appreciate all y'all. And I will see everybody um, on Monday.